We'll have a congregation of the Lord as we begin our sermon. We'll give your attention once again to what we find in our catechism on Lord's Day 16. Would you look with me at question 44? Why is there added, he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this that my Lord Jesus Christ, in his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved congregation of the Lord, as we come to the 16th Uh, Lord's Day of our catechism, we have before us very great weighty doctrines that concern the very pinnacle of Christ's atoning work to redeem his people. As I was studying this Lord's Day, I, I really sought to try to bring all of these heads under one sermon, but as I was studying it more, I became really persuaded that there's great merit in looking at several doctrines that we see here separately. And in particular, I think that there's some merit in this time of year in particular of beginning our study with question 44. Why is it there added he descended into hell. As you may know, this portion of the Apostles' Creed was not found in the earliest manuscripts when this creed began to be used among the Christian churches. And it appears only in the the 4th century that it was added. And over time, there began to be great uh, disputes throughout church history about exactly how to understand this article. And there would be certainly different traditions that would develop grand speculative doctrines which in one way or another depart from the plain teaching of scripture and imperil in some respects the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be some who would argue that there is some sort of legitimate way we could say that Christ went to the place of torment following his death and burial. There would be others who would say, well, well yes, that, that certainly seems problematic if he would continue to suffer in hell after the cross, but perhaps there's some way in which he went to the place of the dead to rescue the souls who were trapped there or otherwise to declare victory over the damned souls that were there and and on and on. And as you look into the different arguments that are mustered in favor of these views, you come to see that these are all just so many human traditions. And as our Catechism points out very uh, simply and plainly, there's no need to affirm such things. Instead, what we find in uh, the scriptures is 
rather the the cross work of Christ as the final uh, completed work of our salvation. And the way in which uh, the Reformed churches have articulated our beliefs has been that we defend the portion of the Apostles' Creed which says he descended into hell by locating this work of Christ as before his death. And thus, we find what our catechism says here, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. In order to vindicate the truthfulness of this belief of the Reformed churches, we will look at a number of scripture passages and seek to discern how it is that we can profit from this very important biblical teaching. With the Lord's help, let's consider this theme, Christ's descent into hell. Christ's descent into hell. And we will consider three things. First, the anguish of hell. Second, the suffering of Christ. And third, the comfort of the believer. Well, this uh, portion of our catechism draws us to a a particular doctrine which is not at all popular in our own day, one that we've had occasion to focus on in different ways and times through this series, through the Heidelberg Catechism, but perhaps never so vividly as this, and that is the reality that hell is a place of torment. This is what is assumed in this article where it speaks of hell in connection with inexpressible, that is, impossible to explain anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. This is what is spoken of in our catechism, and certainly that is, as I say, very unpopular. It is unpopular to consider the doctrine of hell, unpopular certainly if it is believed, to dwell upon it and and think upon it. But the Lord Jesus himself did not shy away from teaching about hell and indeed speaking about the agonies of those who go to that terrible place. As we consider something of the, the agonies of hell, I just want to focus on this aspect of it. And that is... The anguish of hell consists most essentially in this, separation from God. Separation from God. This is ultimately what is revealed in the teaching of the Bible and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to prove that briefly by looking at two portions of the Lord's teaching on this very sobering subject. The first will bring us to the Lord Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 8. 
And I'm sure, children, you maybe remember this story that we will now consider. You remember that Roman centurion who came to Jesus with a very serious problem. He sent word to the Lord Jesus that what had happened was his beloved servant was dying. He was dying. And and this centurion, this soldier, he loved his servant. And he wanted the Lord Jesus to, um, to help him. So the Lord Jesus offered to come into his house. But, but what this centurion told Jesus was, No, Lord, I as well am a man under authority. You just have to say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. That was what that soldier said to Jesus. And, and what Jesus says in replies is very interesting. Listen to this, what we have in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here is something that we have to confront with very squarely, congregation, very honestly. And as according to the Lord Jesus, membership in the covenant community is no guarantee that you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Quite to the contrary, Jesus was saying that faith was so rare among the church in his own day that, that in fact, while many would come from other backgrounds and other nationalities into the liberty of the gospel, that to the contrary, the children of the kingdom, that is those in the visible church, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is one of the examples that Jesus gives of the suffering of hell. And you notice what it consists in. It consists of being cast out, being thrown away. I'm told that uh, the group of um, cultists who were sometimes heckling church services in our area, at one point they tried that and I'm local reformed church and a couple of elders grabbed them and and led them straight out of the building threw them out of the building well that's somewhat of the the picture that we have here people being thrown away out of the presence of god and you notice where they are thrown they are thrown into outer darkness darkness Now, why would that be especially used to express the separation from God? Well, if you think about it, uh, the way in which uh, God's character is revealed in the book of 1 John is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so the opposite of, of being in the presence of God in his goodness 
and his grace, his knowledge and truth and beauty, and altogether perfection, the opposite of that, would be to be cast into darkness. The way to think about um, this, perhaps, would be, what would happen if the sun were to suddenly blink out? A great ball of gas. What if it would no longer sustain the light and the life and uh, all that, that is um, wonderful about this planet in which we have it, if that were to go out, then everything would change. There would be nothing to sustain any kind of life, human life, animal life, plant life on this world whatsoever. And so also when we speak of hell as a separation from God, we are speaking of that which is so dreadful because as creatures made by God, especially made in the image of God, our greatest joy consists of delighting in his perfections, of, of knowing him. Even those who are unbelievers in this world, in some way or fashion, they know God's common, sustaining grace in their lives. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He restrains evil. He, he brings so many joys and pleasures even to the unsaved. But the moment that one soul is cast into hell that is a total separation from God in his goodness and grace. And so Jesus says that this is attended with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea there is that this condition of being in hell is attended with such great sorrow and weeping and, and with pains and agonies that are sort of self-inflicted. You would imagine someone who is banging their teeth together as, as hard as they could, harming themselves. Well, this is sort of a picture of the soul that is cast away from the presence of God. Both in that place of darkness, terror, weeping, as well as the gnawing of their own conscience as they become their own source of agony. This is, as I say, the teaching of Jesus about the nature of hell as separation from God. Let us also look just in the previous chapter where you see that this is also articulated in, in a very vivid way in chapter 7 and verse 21 and following. Jesus says there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in, the name, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So the state of being cast away, it is not just something that, that happens automatically, but rather it is a judicial judgment which is carried out on behalf of God, by the Lord Jesus Christ. This separation will take place in, in this fashion. There will be a forsaking. 
There will be a rejecting that the Lord Jesus will carry out as the judge of, of all. And that the terrible thing about this will, it will be attended with this command, depart from me, depart from me. That is, that is what we see here, congregation. And the, the total picture, I think you'll agree, is one that is most terrifying, one that is mo- most horrible. Who could possibly imagine what is involved in here? You can see that in the context, Jesus is actually being very restrained. He, he doesn't tell us everything that he could tell us about how the souls of the damned will suffer. But surely we see enough. We see that it is a very terrible thing. And why is it that the people of this world, why is it that they so reject this doctrine? Why is it that of ourselves we also find this to be a most difficult doctrine? Well, that is because of sin. Sin. Sin that leads us to doubt the most just conduct of God towards the damned. Consider what the Lord, what the prophet Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 4. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. This Separation from God, which brings about this terrible torment. It is a very just separation where Jesus would speak to anyone and say, depart from me, depart from the presence of God, depart to the place of eternal torment. This is something that is not done capriciously or unfairly. It is a just judgment that is most richly deserved. For the sins that, that earn this terrible judgment, they are against a perfectly holy God who is the standard of all goodness, truth, and justice. What we have here, congregation, is a most hard teaching about the anguish of hell. When we would reflect upon such things, let it never be that we would just see it as another lesson in the scriptures. Let us, each one of us, ask ourselves, how is it that I can escape the wrath to come? Life is very short. How is it that anyone, least of all anyone here, could hear such things and not give attention to this consideration? How can I be one who will be saved from the terrible anguish of hell. And to that we, we may ask the same question that the prophet Nahum did in chapter 1 
and verse 6 of his prophecy. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down before him. Who can stand against this just judgment of God, of a God who burns with wrath against all sin? Well, there is one. There is one who both can and has stood before the wrath of hell. And that brings us to our second consideration, and that is the suffering, the suffering of Christ. Look again at what our catechism says, that in my greatest temptation I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. You may recall in our previous uh, sermon from the Catechism, we did speak about the sufferings of Christ. And we, we spoke a great many things about how it was that our uh, Savior was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And apart from his sufferings, there could be no salvation. But now the catechism goes even further and says, the suffering which he experienced was indeed the same kind of suffering the damned souls experience in hell. How is it that we would vindicate this doctrine from the scriptures? Well, I think that uh, the clearest place to go would be found in Matthew 27, which we read together earlier in the service, and, and point to two respects in which the uh, chapter that we read there testifies that on the cross... Jesus Christ experienced separation from God, which is, as I say, what hell and the suffering of it consists in. Notice what we see in verse 45 of chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. A very striking thing, this. What you have here, according to the Jewish reckoning of time, from what we would call high noon to 3 p.m., the light of the sun stops shining. The sun stops giving its light. And we know there are natural phenomena that could explain that. There, If there was a a lunar eclipse or something like that. But, of course, this was taking place during the time of the Passover where everyone knows there was a full moon at that time. There, there's no natural explanation to explain this. A great act of God. Consider that. All of these people standing around the cross looking at Jesus Christ nailed to that accursed tree. And all of a sudden, black. Blackness all about. No light with which to see. It's a miracle of God. A, a sign. And what does it mean? Well, the meaning is simply this. God would never have us to think that this history of Christ's suffering is merely that of a good man 
who dies a tragic death. No, there is something that is much more important happening here. You see, Jesus in his spiritual agonies is experiencing separation from God. Just as hell he describes so plainly as a place of darkness, so now God sends this darkness in the middle of the day in order to testify of what Christ is experiencing. And if this was not persuasive enough, you have what we know very famously in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So there's the, uh, the actual words Jesus would have spoken in the Aramaic language, and then there is the translation which the gospel writer gives of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is truly experiencing a kind of separation from God, that separation which the pains of hell consists in. How are we to explain this? What can be said about this great and terrible fact of Jesus Christ experiencing hell? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of things that, that ought to guide us. First, we need to understand the, the great gravity of what is taking place here. The one who is saying these words is the very Son of God. He is the one who from eternity was in the bosom of the Father. He is the one who created the worlds. He is the one who shares a single undivided being with the person of the Father and with the person of the Holy Spirit. Even the centurion we read was forced to proclaim, surely this was the Son of God. And so how could it be? How could it possibly be that the Son of God could be forsaken of God the Father? Well, some people have have spoken, I fear, very uh, incautiously in this regard. And, And they would even say there's some sort of fracturing taking place in the Godhead itself, almost like for that moment you have almost more than one God because the, the Father as the Father has this, um, has this forsaking of the Son as the Son. And I think we ought to see that there is, in fact, even evidence in our text that would guard us against those sort of errors which, which could lead to very serious theological problems. You notice that he speaks of the Father as my God, my God. Here is one who is indeed in his person, the Son of God, but he is also true man, and he addresses God as man, for he speaks of him as his God, something that Christ, according to his deity, could not do. 
And so we, we have a bit of, of an explanation in this. We have the Son of God suffering in his humanity, in his righteous soul, which was sorely vexed by the sense of the separation from his beloved Father. And so in his heart and in his mind, he would have experienced something of the agony of the souls and the torments of hell as he who enjoyed perfect communion with his father is made to experience this separation from him. It's interesting that in uh, the book of John, in the, um, in the 15th chapter, no, excuse me, in the 16th chapter, verse 32, Jesus said this to his disciples before he entered into the final stage of his, his mission on the earth. And this is what he said in John 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye, speaking of his disciples, shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So you see that this uh, forsaking, it was not what you would call an absolute forsaking. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who, preaching on Matthew 27, said that if it were possible, the father surely would have, have loved his son all the more when he was on the cross, when in perfect subjection to the Lord's eternal will, he gave his life as a sacrifice. Surely, the father could not but love his son in that act of obedience. And indeed, as Jesus said in John 16, there was a sense in which God was never apart from his son. There was a sense in which his love and his favor was completely undiminished. Indeed, by the, the spirit of his father, he was enabled to carry out this terrible role as the savior in his suffering. And yet, there is a sense in which Jesus truly says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer of why that can be so, congregation, is because he died and suffered. Even the pains of hell upon the cross, he suffered in that way as a representative not for his own sins. He was completely without the least bit of blame. He was completely without any sin whatsoever. But he suffered for sinners like you and I in our place, experiencing the hell that we deserve. That is what we have here for that moment as we read recently in John uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and oh congregation if you've ever ever had any apprehensions of what it would mean to go to hell 
If you've ever had any true convictions of your sin, if you've ever looked at yourself and said, truly I deserve hell, truly I am a worm and not a man, truly I have offended the most high God, and you've ever had that apprehension that you deserve that, how much more should be your joy, and worship and adoration if you have come to find your salvation in Jesus Christ. If you in your soul have rested upon his cross work as your salvation from the judgment of hell. If you have come to know that you are saved from that dreadful eternity of being separated from God, how can it but How can it not but bring joy to your soul? How can you not but say, truly this is my Savior, and I must give him my life, my being, my all. I must rejoice in him. We see that, don't we, congregation, not only the agonies of hell and the suffering of Christ, but let's third see in the third place the comfort of the believer, the comfort of the believer. That is obviously what our whole catechism is driving at, how it is that those who are believers in Christ can know the comfort of the gospel. And in a sense, this very question might in in some ways be the very heart of that comfort of which the whole catechism is speaking. Notice how it puts it here, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself, that is, entirely comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, in his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell." Now, in my study of this portion of the catechism, uh, the reformer Zacharias Ursinus, who is the author of this catechism, when he wrote uh, this article in the original German, he used a word for temptations that was very particular. He had in view not just those uh, temptations which might lead us uh, into sin, which might lead us away from the Lord, but especially the temptations of a true believer to doubt their salvation. So the purpose of this particular part of the catechism is this, trying to assure one who does have faith in Jesus Christ that indeed they are a true Christian, that indeed they are a saved man or woman. And of course we understand that there can be those who would abuse such a, such a teaching where they have no true faith and they would, they would receive a comfort which is not true. But such is the heart of the Scriptures and such is the care of the Reformed Church that there is this special uh, important need to give instruction to those believers who are weak in faith and need to be encouraged. You need to be encouraged that 
they have a true and a sound salvation in the Lord Jesus. And they find that, according to our catechism, in this great fact that Christ suffered the agonies of hell in our place. And how might it be that one would receive true comfort and strength and assurance and, and all the things of which we read there from reflecting on this great truth? Well, consider... This example, suppose it were the case that you'd come into this place, believer, after falling into some great sin. Suppose, whether in the past week or the past month, you know in your conscience that you've done something terrible. And perhaps you've become aware of this and you've confessed it before the Lord, you're beginning to make things right through your repentance, but... You, you know this, that the joy of your salvation has been robbed you. You know that you have done something so atrocious that you have begun to question, how is it that God could have mercy upon me? Well, here is what you should consider. Consider how the fact of Christ suffering the pains of hell on the cross, see how that reveals his love to you, believer. Why is it that Christ would suffer such things? Because of his love for hell-deserving wretched sinners like you and I. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus calls the like of you and me his friends. And says this is for the reason he lays down his life. And in laying down his life, suffers the agonies of hell. Oh, congregation, there was nothing, nothing in any of us that deserved Christ experiencing such things when he paid that cost. We were so infinitely unworthy to receive that gift. And because we did nothing to deserve it before, how could we ever do do anything to deserve it after? How is it we could ever fall into thinking even for a moment that it is our obedience that earns uh, the love of Christ for us? No. The love of Christ is completely undeserved, completely of, of grace. And so for that reason, believer, this one who suffered hell in your place His love could never diminish for you, even if you fall into terrible sin. Or perhaps it would would be this. Perhaps you say, well, of course, preacher, I can understand that logic. Of course, the love of Christ is, is undiminished, and yet I find myself still tormented. Yes, I believe I've fled to Christ for mercy, and yet I don't have that joy in my heart today. I, I can't have that assured confidence that will be sustained through life and death. I, I have to be honest with you, preacher. I am terrified of death. Terrified of it. Terrified that when I finally make that plunge, that there will be nothing to catch me. That indeed I may have besobbed and fooling myself. I find my faith flickering. I find it weakening. I fear it will not endure. 
well, congregation, consider what we have in those words of Jesus. Eli, Eli, lama sabathani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Notice that. He refers to his father as my God, my God. Even the Lord Jesus, even at that moment, he was exercising a kind of faith in his God. Faith unlike ours, a perfect faith, a strong faith. But in that, in his perfect faith, was he not making up for all the defects of the faith of his people? We know that that our faith, even true and sincere faith, it it ebbs and waves and and is weak and, and the child of God can be cast into despondency. And so how comforting, how comforting to know that Christ's faith is strong where ours is so weak. It says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. O oh, believer, if you have any doubts, then comfort yourself in this, that it is not strong faith that saves, but even weak faith in a strong Savior. Keep on cleaving unto him. Keep on meditating on his dying love, upon his his hellish agonies which he endured in your place. Keep on cleaving unto him until a more seasonable season of grace strengthens that faith and you restore the joys that you knew in times past. I will leave this last consideration with you, how it is that this, uh, this doctrine affords such comfort to the believer, and that is that it is grounded upon the justice of God, the justice of God. I believe we heard a sermon not that long ago on this text from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would understand that much more easily, wouldn't you, if it said he is faithful and gracious to forgive us our sins. But no, it says he is faithful and just for, to forgive us our sins. Faithful and just. Just congregation. Because in the cross we see grace and mercy meeting with the perfect justice of God. God is able to be merciful unto sinners like you and I because he exercised perfect, strict, complete justice towards his Son on our behalf. Without shortcuts, without any defect whatsoever, Jesus paid it all on our behalf. If we will not meditate upon such things, then our joy is liable to be very weak, very fleeting. 
But when the true child of God hears of such things, under the blessing of the Spirit, the the Lord is pleased to grant seasons of great communion with the Lord, where we would meditate for hours even, could it be, and, and think, wow, this is what the Son of God did for me, even for me. God is pleased when we delight in the sufferings of his son. In closing, I'm reminded of something that Martin Luther said. He said, when I look at myself, I do not know how I could be saved. But when I look, when I look to him, I do not see how I could be lost. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, congregation, that is the faith which is pleasing to the Lord. Let us seek that with our whole hearts and be content with nothing else. Amen. In response to the message, let us sing from Psalter 47, stanzas 8 to 11.